right now on Matter of Fact. In the early 1930s, nine out of 10 rural Americans lived without electricity. Can't we ever have electricity? Until FDR signed a law to wire the nation. Rural electrification for all. Today, too many people living in small towns and on farms are desperate for a digital connection. If you don't invest in broadband, you are signing somewhat of a death certificate for the area. How do we get rural America online all over again? Plus, extreme heat is putting extreme stress on the nation's power grid. The whole world is becoming so much more dependent on electricity that even a moment without power is, uh, is a real problem for people. What's the fix for a system struggling to keep up with demand? And the rainbow flag is flying high for Pride Month. I thought a flag is very useful as a symbol in terms of it proclaims power, it says something. Hear the story of the flag's creator, who called himself the gay Betsy Ross. I'm Soledad O'Brien. Welcome to Matter of Fact. If we learned one thing in the pandemic, it was the importance of the internet in our lives. Broadband access gave us the ability to work remotely, to schedule food deliveries, to see our doctors using video visits, to help our kids with their schoolwork. That was the story in most urban areas. But for people who are living in areas of the country without a digital safety net, the challenges were immense. Research groups say up to 42 million Americans are without broadband access. The FCC's official estimate is 15 million. 75% of those living in digital deserts live in rural America. Our correspondent, Dina Demetrius, visited Phillips County, one of the poorest in Arkansas, where neighbors are working to deploy broadband and join the digital age. In the heart of the Mississippi Delta, the small agricultural town of Elaine, Arkansas, is a picture of historic divides, racial, economic, and now digital. This is the north side of town, where it's predominantly black, and this the south side that's predominantly white. Lisa Hicks-Gilbert is trying to bridge those divides with fiber optics. So nothing works without the internet, right. and definitely nothing works uh, without internet that's reliable. Last year, Gilbert returned to her hometown from Little Rock and is now program manager of a local nonprofit addressing rural disparities. She says when the pandemic hit two years ago, the slow service from the town's only provider practically brought it to a standstill. You had some people who had lost their jobs. They're trying to maybe um, sell jewelry, you know, get an online business. The children are trying to do homework. You realize how inadequate um, the service is. Laying fiber lines in rural areas is costly. The smaller customer base means a smaller return on investment. That leaves rural communities in the dust. Elaine has just been getting crumbs and uh, we can no longer allow that to continue to happen. Feeling the pain of her community's stagnation, Gilbert found a benefactor who pays for free internet on one block of Main Street. It's beamed from right across the river in Mississippi to these devices on buildings and Elaine's water tower. So how much has this free Wi-Fi helped people and changed mm -hmm. their lives? Well, even when we have some of our students that come with their, their uh, internet service goes out, they can come up here and finish, finish the work they need to have done. Our vendors will be able to access the internet and be able to make those Cash App, PayPal, Venmo, whatever sales. 
For Candace Williams, an executive director at Rural Community Alliance, and her nine-year-old son, Caleb, lack of internet service during the pandemic forced them to drive a half hour each way daily to Helena for Caleb's virtual school. I would have to go to, to uh, McDonald's to use their free Wi-Fi. I would just sit in the parking lot. Now Williams' family switched to a hotspot, but it eats up data quickly, costing her up to $200 a month to buy more gigs. Why can't we connect people to the outside world uh, with, with, with that service that they need and it's not a significant amount of their income? Heading up to Helena, its residents don't fare much better. At least 40% can't get online reliably. We have got a divide in everywhere in rural America. When you add access, quality internet access, you take that divide and you fill it up this much. Nancy McKee tries to lure new businesses and life to Phillips County. I've got rail. I've got four lane to the interstate. I've got the Mississippi River, the greatest corridor for transportation. But on historic Cherry Street in downtown Helena, McKee's passion for renewal is stifled. Would you say broadband and the lack of it is pretty much the nail in the coffin with every conversation you have. And they say, well, which of these buildings has, you know, pretty good fiber in? And I'm like, none, zero. They just kind of look at me like, what, where am I? Is this prehistoric? Few entrepreneurs are drawn to the area like Harvey Williams. He and his family returned from Chicago to help run his new distillery, Delta Dirt, the only thriving business on Cherry Street. If you don't invest in broadband, you are signing somewhat of a death certificate for the area because essentially you're saying the area is not worth it. It would cost $550 million to finish covering Arkansas with fiber, and many rural officials don't have time to pursue federal and state broadband grants. McKee says it's time for a federally funded work program to lay that fiber. There's a job for 10 years, and on top of that, because you, all of a sudden you're growing, right? What happens when you grow? Oh, we get a new neighborhood. Oh. Well, you get a whole new development area. Development that would mean higher paying jobs so people can grow in small towns. As we reimagine our lives and our futures here in Elaine, it's gonna have to start with broadband. And that's what we have to fight for. In Phillips County, Arkansas, I'm Dina Demetrius for Matter of Fact. Next on Matter of Fact, Powered by fossil fuels, moving towards solar, the grid is getting an upgrade. The electric grid in North America is, is the largest, most complicated machine ever built. What will it take to transform America's power source in the middle of a climate change challenge? Plus, she was a star forward in the women's NBA. Now, she's a team owner. I feel like Title IX started a race, and look what's happened in those 50 years. Renee Montgomery talks with Soledad about the law that helped make her dreams possible. And later. It started with something that I'm making with my hands and <laughs> sewing it, and it's beautiful. How this colorful banner became a global symbol of inclusion. To stay up to date with Matter of Fact, Sign up for our newsletter at matteroffact.tv.
Texas power grid is facing a stress test. Extreme heat across the country is putting a strain on the electrical grids that power our lives. In May, the Biden administration announced $2.5 billion to modernize and expand the electrical grid. But that's not a quick fix. Without additional capacity, service interruptions are possible, creating potentially life-threatening situations. Jim Robb is the CEO of the North American Electric Reliability Corporation, which monitors risks to the grid. Thank you for talking with me. You have said the system is vulnerable, that in fact it's dangerously stressed. For lay people, what exactly does that mean? And, and how do we get here? There are really three things that are affecting the outlook for reliability this summer. The, and, and the first and foremost is a uh, weather forecast that's really problematic for the electric grid. It shows elevated temperatures across most of the western two-thirds of the continent. And if you couple that with a very dry outlook, uh, meaning continued drought conditions for the, uh, for the western two-thirds of the continent, that's just a recipe to, uh, to stress any electric system. And, and ours has gotten more complicated because the grid itself is going through a massive transformation, moving toward low-carbon resources like wind and solar. And we're retiring some of the traditional generation that we've grown used to and, and studied and understand so much for over the years. Is it getting worse? We've been seeing a progression of riskier uh, outlooks for the electric grid for the last four or five years. And part of that is definitely the weather. The other issue that's going on is in the transformation of the grid itself. We're having what we would call a disorderly retirement of older generation, which uh, is happening too quickly. How hard is it to make that transition, right, from fossil fuels to dependency on some other kind of clean energy? Unfortunately, it's, it's very, very complicated. Uh, the, the electric grid in North America is, is the largest, most complicated machine ever built. What we really want to know is that when we flip the light switch that the lights come on, there's really a miracle of electrical and industrial engineering behind that. And the issue we run into with the transition of the grid, particularly towards solar resources, is that solar resources don't naturally create alternating current or AC current. So it has to go through a, a, a transformation device called an inverter that, uh, that syncs it to the rest of the system. And we need, we need to make sure that these inverters work in a way that promote reliability. So I would say that it's different. It's not better or worse. So tick off for me the biggest sources involved in powering the electric grid. So right now, at, at this point in time, the largest uh, single source of power in the U.S. is, uh, is natural gas. It's the uh, largest capacity resource that we have. It's followed pretty closely by coal, uh, which is declining uh, pretty significantly. After that, it's nuclear. And then after that, we have wind, solar, and hydro, which are all about the same amount. How do you fix it? You've got to keep the power grid going while you're also repairing the power grid and transitioning the power grid. Sounds almost impossible. I think one of the things that people lose, sometimes lose sight of is that an, an electric grid at any point in time or the electric sector at any point in time needs to find ways to balance uh, reliability, uh, affordability, uh, and its environmental impact. And I think one of the time that when we get in trouble is when we overemphasize one of those three dimensions as opposed to recognizing that they all need to be worked and thought of in tandem. So the whole world is becoming so much more dependent on electricity that even a moment without power is, uh, is a real problem for people. Jim Robb is the CEO of the North American Electric Reliability Corporation. Mr. Robb, thank you for talking with me. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. You bet. Coming up on Matter of Fact. 
the co-owner of the Atlanta Dream. I just would say to young women, just go get it. Renee Montgomery has some advice for the young women following in her footsteps. And still ahead. The Latino story is one that we all need. The First Lady helps celebrate the first steps toward the Smithsonian's National Museum of the American Latino. 50 years ago, on June 23, 1972, Title IX was signed into law. Women's rights activist Bernice Saylor worked with Congresswoman Patsy Mink and Shirley Chisholm to create and pass the legislation. Their goal, to address sex-based discrimination in higher education, something they'd all experienced. The law covers employment, admissions, financial aid, and housing, but it also revolutionized women's involvement in sports in the U.S. In 1972, fewer than 300,000 girls participated in high school sports. By 2019, that number had grown to almost three and a half million. One well-known beneficiary of Title IX, former WNBA star Renee Montgomery, the first woman to go from player to part owner of a WNBA team. I recently spoke with Renee for the Matter of Fact listening tour, Trailblazers, Troublemakers, and Dreams. Renee Montgomery, so nice to see you. Thanks for talking with me. We are in the 50th anniversary of Title IX. How do you see your place in, you know, sort of the story of, of legacy, taking what other people have started and then, you know, trying to move it forward? I think it's a baton. I think that what everything is happening is almost like passing a baton race. And it's like, all right, I'm gonna run as far and as fast as I can. And I feel like Title IX started a race. And look what's happened in those 50 years. You know, look what's happened to Women's Sports League. The WNBA last year celebrated its 25th anniversary. So halfway through this 50 year anniversary, a whole WNBA league started. And so you start to think about the baton and the race that was going on. And so I think we're still in it. I always just, you know, have so much respect for the people that had momentum started before there was just connectors and megaphones like social media, because that took some real work, some real effort, some real boots on the ground. And so, you know, I just I, I'm just blessed to be a part of that group. What do you want other young women to know about what's possible in life from your story? As women, we naturally will doubt ourselves. Let's stop doing that. We do it in pictures, we do it in the workplace. A lot of times women will not apply for a job because they'll assume that they probably won't get it. And I think that's the main thing that I just would say to young girls and young women. It's just like, just go get it. There's a hundred thousand reasons why right now is not the time. And there will always be a hundred thousand reasons why. You'll always be busy. There was not a good time for me to opt out. I'm gonna tell you that right now. Like it was uncomfortable the whole time I thought about it, but so many different things changed. So I would just say to just do it now and, and celebrate all the small victories when it happens. Renee Montgomery, always nice to talk to you. Thank you so Let's much. Go. Great to see you again. You can watch the rest of my interview with Renee Montgomery and the entire Matter of Fact listening tour, Trailblazers, Troublemakers, and Dreams by going to our website, matteroffact.tv. Ahead on Matter of Fact, rainbow flags are flying for Pride Month. Even though we're not a country and a nation, we're kind of a people. The inspiration behind the symbol flown round the world.
York City's 53rd annual Pride March is this weekend. It's one of the largest in the world. The rainbow flag will be front and center at this event and at countless others that are happening around the globe. It's the LGBTQ plus symbol of pride. But how exactly did that come to be? The story starts in the late 1970s when Harvey Milk, California's first openly gay elected official, asked an artist friend, Gilbert Baker, to come up with a positive, inclusive symbol for the community. Even though we're not a country and a nation, we're kind of a people, and I thought a flag is very useful as a symbol in terms of it proclaims power, it says something. Baker's original design had eight colors, including hot pink and turquoise, which were later dropped. The strips were hand-dyed and sewn, creating two enormous flags, which debuted at San Francisco's 1978 Gay Freedom Day Parade. Four years later, when San Francisco hosted the first gay games, Gilbert Baker was asked to decorate the main stage, introducing the rainbow flag to athletes from around the world. Then, in the mid-80s, Interpride, the LGBTQ international community organization, voted to make the flag its official symbol. By 1994, uh, when I made the mile-long flag for Stonewall 25 in New York City, it was around the world. Yeah, it started with something that I'm making with my hands and you know, settling it, and it's beautiful, but it became a phenomenon that, that the world um, embraced. You can still get a glimpse of Baker's original handiwork. A remnant of one of his first flags is on display at San Francisco's GLBT Historical Society. Next on Matter of Fact. What we've learned through this work is that Latino history is American history. Creating a new space to tell more of America's complex story. Finally, today we celebrate the first steps toward the Smithsonian's National Museum of the American Latino, which will eventually be built in Washington, D.C., a museum dedicated to the Latino experience in the United States. It's going to take about 10 years before it's finally finished. But for now, the Smithsonian has created a 4,500 square foot exhibit at the Molina Family Latino Gallery inside the National Museum of American History, a space helping visitors answer questions like, who are we as Americans? Who are we as Latinos? This is a very special moment for the Latino community and for the country. The gallery is a celebration of Latinidad. The bilingual exhibit features history. Here, the raft used by two Cuban men to come to the U.S., interactive displays, and stories for all generations. The Latino story is one that we all need, no matter our background, because it teaches us the indomitable power of hope and persistence and it reminds us that our differences are precious and our similarities infinite. And just a note, I serve as a volunteer on the advisory board for the museum, which is a huge honor. That's it for this edition of Matter of Fact. I'm Soledad O'Brien. I'll see you back here next week. If you missed our top stories about the lack of broadband access in rural America, the stress on the nation's power grids, how former WNBA player Renee Montgomery has benefited from Title IX, and the history behind Gay Pride's rainbow flag, go to matteroffact.tv. And listen to Matter of Fact with Soledad O'Brien on your favorite podcast provider.
Watch us during the week on FYI, Pluto, and YouTube.